Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we do come before you now as we have prayed, Lord, that uh, desiring to have the thoughts of our hearts made pure so that we could love you with our whole hearts, Lord. We, we pray that again as we come to the word of God this morning. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, instill in us the truth of the scriptures, Lord. I pray for open and tender hearts, and I pray for me that you would grant me a mouth to preach. Give me your word for this moment in the life of this church and in the lives of these people. And Lord, we pray this so that the name of Jesus may be exalted above everything and so that we might be made more fruitful disciples. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, listen again to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I want you to hear this. We heard it read earlier by Lisa Breeding this morning, but I want you to hear this again and pay particular attention. It is a heartfelt, a heartfelt appeal from St. Paul to the church in Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all right, complete my joy. Here, so you've heard this set up. All of these things Paul is appealing to. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what is Paul appealing for at the very beginning of this passage that we just heard read? He is appealing for unity, right? He's appealing for unity. And over and over, throughout the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he, he sends out that same plea. We hear it in uh, Romans, we hear it in Ephesians, we hear it in the Galatian church, we hear it in, uh, in here in the church in Philippi, First and Second uh, Corinthians. Why is he appealing repeatedly for unity in the church? Well, because, well, first of all, you know, this is kind of a helpful thing for us to realize. Evidently, the early church had problems, too. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't even have most of the New Testament if the early church didn't have problems because so much of the uh, New Testament letters are written on the occasion of issues and problems arising in the early church. So if you think that the early church was some sort of pure, uh, uh, wonderful a community that ne never had any conflict or any issues, that is just not correct at all. So listen again to this. Paul is saying, be united. Why do we need to be united? Because disunity is always, listen, it is always destructive to, uh, it's a destructive pattern that any church can fall into. And if Satan can bring disunity into the church, then he will destroy our witness in the world and he will shipwreck the faith of believers. If Satan can bring disunity in the church, he will destroy our witness in the world and he will shipwreck the faith of believers. Right this minute, Satan would love to destroy the sweet unity that Christ church has experienced for going on 12 years now. He would love to see that come to an end. And right at the very beginning of this passage, Paul illuminates, he points out, two dynamics that will destroy unity in the church. These are always lurking. Listen, these two dynamics are always lurking in the background in believers' lives within the church. 
So Paul says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So selfish ambition and vain conceit will destroy the unity of the church. So what does this mean? Well, listen, in the context of the church's life, in the context of the church's life, selfish ambition indicates, are you listening? The desire to put one's own personal agenda forward. Selfish ambition is the desire to put one's, one's own personal agenda forward. And conceit in this passage is used as a parallelism. It kind of uh, fills out what Paul is trying to express. And it means a futile, false reckoning of one's own importance in the scheme of things. So taken together, selfish ambition and conceit mean, listen, viewing the church as the means or as a means of personal fulfillment. Viewing the church as a means of personal fulfillment. It means seeing the church as a means of having one's personal needs met and addressed. Now, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because this is precisely what most uninformed people think that the church should be about. The church should meet my needs. The church should meet my needs. That's why the church exists. And I've seen the research that backs this up. I was looking at it just this past week. But when we say the church should meet my needs, what we mean is, listen, what we feel, what we feel that our needs are, what we personally feel our needs to be, rather than what God says our true needs ours. Now, I want to just say this. I want to say this gently, and I need to hear this, and you need to hear this. Brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, it is not the church's job to meet what we think, what we think our needs are, because, here's the reason, because our fallen, depraved, you know, if, uh, I don't know, I don't think, I don't know if I'm an official five-point Calvinist or not. I'm an Augustinian, I know that. But I agree with one of those points. Total depravity keeps getting proven every day. Every day in the life of the world, I see total depravity worked out in my life and yours too. So, here's why... It, it's not the job of the church to meet what we consider our, felts, our felt needs. It's because our fallen, our sinful nature, our hearts deceive us as to the nature of what is really lacking in our existence. In other words, what we feel, our, you know, sort of like front burner, what I feel my need is, is probably not really my deepest need. How can I say that? Well, I can say that because of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where the scripture says, the heart is deceitful, the heart, the human heart, is deceitful above all things, and, and deep down it's really good. No, it says, and it's desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So brothers and sisters, despite what every Disney princess has ever told you, do not follow your heart. <laughs> Don't follow your heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately 
wicked. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, rise again on the third day, and ascend to the Father's right hand in order to create a church to help us find self-fulfillment. It is the job, here it is, it's the job of the church to help us die to ourselves so that we could find true life because the life we grasp for actually prohibits, prevents us from experiencing, I love the way it's said, Paul says it in 1 Timothy, last chapter of that little book, find the life that is truly life, the life that is truly life. Matthew chapter 16, very familiar passage, Jesus is speaking. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. This is my, my uh, um, support for these assertions. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him fulfill himself. No. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his lazy boy recliner. No. And take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But here's the deal. Many times we don't even realize that selfish ambition, we don't really realize that selfish ambition and conceit are driving our involvement with the body of Christ, are driving our involvement with the church. We may pour out ourselves in service. We work really hard, and maybe we even give very sacrificially. We may be even having warm religious feelings, but ultimately our relationship with the body of Christ can be self-serving, selfish ambition, because, listen, wait for it, why can it be self-serving, selfish ambition? Because what we are really seeking to experience is personal significance. We, are, we, we wrap it up in religious activity and religious feelings, but what it really is really not directed outwardly to God, rather through this involvement, for, through religiosity, we are seeking for personal worth and personal significance. We get a sense of personal worth through the church. But where should our sense, this is so important, this distinction is critical, where should our sense of personal worth actually come from? Where does it originate? Where is significance for you and for me originate? It, begin, it begins actually in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where it tells us we are worthwhile, we are significant because we are created in the image and likeness of God. It's hard to top that. It's hard to find much more worth and significance than that. Now listen, I'm, uh, this is not any kind of political statement at all. Please don't hear it that way. I love to talk about politics, and anytime you want to, we, you can do that with me, and you'll find out what's right, okay? <laughs> but this is not one of those times, all right? Listen, we don't believe lives matter. We believe that lives are sacred, holy gloriously created in the image and likeness of Almighty God. That's better than anything else we could claim. 
That's my significance. Where else does my significance come from? It comes from the fact that Jesus loved me so much that he gave himself for me. He offered himself up on the cross. God loves you so much. He thinks you are so worthy and significant that he was willing in Christ to give up his life on your behalf. That makes you significant and worthwhile. Where else do I find my significance? I'm significant because through faith in Jesus Christ, by the new birth, by adoption through baptism, I am made a child of God. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Little we are God's children now. We are God's children now. Those are three reasons we have infinite value and significance. So if we are using church involvement to get a, per, a, a feeling of personal significance, what we're really doing is selfish ambition and conceit because we don't have to earn our significance. We don't have to earn our value. Does that make sense? It is good news. It is good news. This can so easily hijack, we, this, this pursuit of significance through church involvement can so easily hijack the real source of self-worth. We can end up being the church lady. We can end up being the church dude. But here's what will happen if we are seeking our significance through the church and not through our relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And pastors need to hear this as much as lay people. Listen, here, here's what will happen. If the Holy Spirit begins to gift others in the church, and are you, are you listening? Begins to gift others in the church, begins to raise those people up and place them in the leadership maybe that you once held, and it hurts your feelings, it is because your service was really about making you feel significant and worthwhile. Did you know that? If the church seems to be going, running into a new direction in a different season, and you are not at the front of those new directions, and you get hurt by this, it is because your service was about making you feel worthwhile. It was really not about Jesus. Generally speaking, I'm going to use some very technical um, theological terminology here. You may want to write this down. But generally speaking, if you are experiencing butt hurt, did he say that in church? Yeah, he did. If you're experiencing butt hurt in church, it is usually directly proportional to the amount that you thought it was really all about you. We all need to hear that. So ambition and conceit destroy unity. But what promotes unity? It's uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Paul says here. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the key ingredient to creating loving, nurturing, life-giving fellowship that God desires his church to experience is that each of us must adopt the mind of Christ Jesus. In other words, that the Holy Spirit, if this is the work of the Spirit in the life of the submitted believer, that the Holy Spirit would form Christ's own, that, that the Holy Spirit would give me Christ's own desires and Christ's own attitudes, that those may dwell and live in me. 
So the shorthand for that expression would be to be made Christ-like, to be made Christ-like. That is a work of the Spirit in the submitted believer's life. It is not done by striving in the flesh. It is not done by striving in the flesh. So to be Christ-like, listen, is to be unconcerned about our personal position. To be Christ-like is to be unconcerned about our personal position. The Bible teaches, listen, we serve a downwardly mobile God. We serve a downwardly mobile God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, says that Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God. So he's equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited. But instead, he emptied himself. So the entire exist, our entire existence as followers of Jesus Christ is defined by who Jesus is. He is God who has poured himself out in the incarnation to be one of us. So, please listen. He who was the highest became the lowest. He who was most full of glory became empty and humble. He who had all authority in heaven and earth became the most obedient. He who created the human form washed his disciples' feet. When Jesus is bending low to wash those disciples' feet, he's thinking, I made that foot. I made it. And now in humility, I bend down to wash the creature that I made. Isn't that amazing? He who was blessed by adoring angels became cursed and hung on a tree. The one who was most beautiful embraced the ultimate ugliness of the cross. Our God is a downwardly mobile God. If by God's grace we allow the Holy Spirit to form the mind of Christ in us, it means that we will empty ourselves in similar ways in servanthood. The scripture says, Philippians uh, 2, 7, verse 9, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus Christ shows us the way God demonstrates his authority. This is how God demonstrates his authority. It is through pouring himself out as a servant. Humility... I'm saying these, each one of these things are something we just kind of need to rest on and, and marinate in. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't bring, you know, like a Ziploc bag to put this all in and marinate us. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Humility and unity, humility and unity go hand in hand. Where there is humility, there will be unity. Where there is a lack of humility, there will be dissensions and factions and divisions. Jesus himself said this about humility. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how God's fatherly authority over the cosmos is expressed when he becomes one of us in Jesus Christ. He takes the pyramid of human authority and inverts it. So that now authority is by, being, by willingly offering yourself to be made low. The unity of the church is ensured when we, being conformed to the image of Christ, humble ourselves to identify with and to embrace those whom the world rejects and considers untouchable or valueless. Jesus, it says this about Jesus in uh, Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is Jesus's ultimately, his ultimate identification with unclean, broken, sinful humanity. Instead of keeping us at arm's length, he became one of us and took our sin upon himself. We shrink from interaction with the most broken, the poor, the marginalized, because we fear social contamination or that we will be overwhelmed by their neediness. And yet that's just exactly, that identification with us is exactly how Jesus Christ transformed us. To identify with Christ is to be obedient when, especially when, it does not suit our natural desires and in inclinations. Obedience and submission do not come easy for us. But Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's, listen, brothers and sisters, I'm, when we hear that word obedience, when we say obedience, obedience doesn't usually mean that you agree with what is asked of you. Think about that parable that Jesus told in Matthew's gospel. The one who obeyed was the one who didn't want to do it. Son, go out and do work in the, in the vineyard. Not going to do it, Dad. And yet he went and did it. it, was, was, it was, was it his desire to go and work in the vineyard? No, it was not. He was playing Xbox. <laughs> but he went and did it anyway. It was against his desires and inclination. So obedience is most often demonstrated in a cross in our lives. It is not the way of finding personal significance. It is the way of dying to self. So here we're going to apply this right now. Take out, your, take out that red book with the Jerusalem cross on the front. That's the book of common prayer. And turn with me to page 673. So take out your book of common prayer. Anglicans are so lame. They have to have a book so they can pray. Well, what do you think the book of Psalms is? Just one prayer after another. This is biblical. In fact, all these, all these prayers are based in Scripture. So turn with me to page 673 in your book of common prayer. Now go down to the bottom of the, of the page to number 93. Do you see that number 93? It says a covenant prayer. Now listen, I want us, we're going to pray this together in just a moment because this draws all that I have said together. All right, all that we've heard from the scripture is drawn together in this prayer. 
And before I ask you to pray it, I want to give you a warning. This, this prayer has a warning label. Are you ready? If you love your selfish ambition and vain conceit, then do not pray this prayer. Because through this prayer, if we pray it and mean it, God is going to kill that part of us. So if you want to hold on to, I'm going to find my significance in, in something other than my identity in Christ, don't pray this prayer. If you want to hold on to a sense of personal, I'm, I'm a, someone you better look up to and respect, don't pray this prayer. If, if you want to hold on to your butt hurt, don't pray this prayer. Some people will never come back to this church because I've said that now three times. I know that. But you need to hear that. But if you do want to have the mind of Christ formed in you, if you do want to find significance in Christ, if you do want to enter into life-giving relationship with Christ and serve God's people and the world in a Christ-like way, then I would encourage you to pray this prayer with me. So please stand up. And we're going to pray this prayer in unison. We're going to pray this in unison. And I'm going to ask you to remain standing afterwards. I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Friends, through self-emptying humility, God came to earth as a despised and rejected Palestinian Jewish rabbi, stretched out his arms on the rough wood of the cross, embraced our fallen race, gave us new life. How do we do this? This seems so difficult. We do this as Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Where is, where is the energy for this coming from? From God. It is God who works in you, both to will, to give you the desire and purpose, and to work to give you the energy and effectual means of doing it, his good pleasure. He will give us this grace if we walk in humility with him. We, we, by one source, one source of this power comes to us as baptized believers through the means of grace offered in Holy Communion. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God will use simple bread and wine because he promised to do it, to give us the ability to live fully in Christ. Again and again, Jesus pours himself out here on this table to transform our, transform our lives, and every time he does it, greater glory goes to him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.